Welcome to episode 54 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Today I'm talking with Hank Shaw. Hank has an amazing blog at honest-food.net. He's the author of Hunt, Gather, Cook, Finding the Forgotten Feast, and the forthcoming book, Duck, Duck, Goose, The Ultimate Guide to Cooking Waterfall. First thing I'd like to say is that um, just an amazing thank you to some supporters of the show, namely Andrew, Douglas, Edward, and Carol. It really means a lot to me, and it helps me continue this project, this show of mine. And I, I really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show, there's a donate link at the bottom of every single page on my site and also in every podcast episode. There's a PayPal donate link. I also have a resources tab at my website. My website is askbrian, A-S-K-B-R-Y-A-N.com. Pretty simple. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Hank. He's a wonderful person and... I had a lot of fun talking to him. He caught me off guard right at the beginning of the episode, and I uh, didn't get his reference, so it was a funny moment. I always like when I look a little silly. Uh, um, I really love talking to Hank. I'm really glad that he spent some time with me, and I, I really hope you'll check out his books. You know, it's a further exploration of um, this food way, this this thing that we all do. And uh, his methodology um, should be it should be cherished and learned from. Maybe you could uh, become a practitioner yourself. My favorite quote from this episode is, "Eating is more than just the nutritional act. You know, eating is cultural and symbolic." Hank says that, and uh, I think that sums up this episode. Well, this episode's rambling and all over the place, but that's a pretty great point that Hank made. Enjoy the show. Hello. Hello, Hank. Speaking. Hank, this is Brian from uh, Doc Fermento Show. Oh, hey, how you doing? How are you? I'm good. Hold on a second. Yeah. Just, you have a 661 number? That, isn't that Bakersfield? No, it's um, Skype, so I don't know what numbers it uses. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it's just an internet <laughs> protocol, so they probably have numbers all over the country. Yeah, 661 is Bakersfield. Oh, like, interesting. Who the fuck is calling me from Bakersfield? <laughs> <laughs> Someone that wants to go hunt, I guess. <laughs> I suppose. Hey, so do you have some time? Absolutely. Great, man. Hey, you know, I, I um, had just happened upon your book, actually, at the library, Hunt, Gather, Cook, Finding mm-hmm. the Forgotten Feast, and I absolutely loved it, and it uh, it really spoke to me. It brought back a lot of memories from my childhood and um, kind of inspired me to get back to some basics I had long forgotten. So I appreciate that. Why don't you 
Let's start with this. Why don't you give me a little bio, and then we'll roll that into why you ended up writing that book. Okay. First, the earth cooled. Then the dinosaurs came, but they died and turned into oil. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can get and, the reference, you get extra points. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even know if that's... And some people debate whether that's actually the, the, the oil, where that came from, but... That's a, uh, it's a, uh, that's an airplane reference. Right, right. <laughs> that's, now you got me here, right? Yeah. And the, the next one's something about naked men in a shower or something, I think. <laughs> Do you like gladiator movies? <laughs> <laughs> that movie never gets old. So if you want to know sort of where I'm coming from, um, I was born and raised in New Jersey. And, you know, my mom is from Massachusetts and I come by my foraging and my fishing kind of honestly. I mean, it's that those things are kind of part of our family's DNA. I mean, my mom, you know, picked berries and dug clams and fished when she was a little girl. Uh, She grew up during World War II and her uncle was a fairly well-known forager and naturalist in New England. And he used to take her out. And showed her essentially the you know open the door of the wild world for her, and she passed that on to all her kids. So for us, you know, picking berries, digging clams, going fishing, this was something. This is part of a normal, you know, annual cycle. You know, every June the flounder would come and we would go flounder fishing, and the summertime we would, you know, we would take the only vacation that we would ever do in the year which would be on the island of Block Island. And it's next to Nantucket. And back then, in the late 70s, it was kind of a grubby um, <laughs> the grubby cousin to Martha's Vineyard in, in Nantucket. Mm-hmm. So she would rent a cottage, which now would be exorbitantly expensive, but back, back then it was kind of cheap, and, and sort of send us all out into the fields and seashores to go do things, you know, and... I kind of really cut my eye teeth as a forager and a fisherman out there, and and I'd been doing it my whole life just as a kind of a side note. And you know, as the years went by, I got a little bit better and I got a little bit better. And I didn't pick up hunting until I was 32, and I was living in Minnesota. And that I'd kind of been thinking about it anyway, because it's for me, hunting is kind of completing the circle. You know, you've got fish and seafood, you've got plants and mushrooms, and then, you know, you sort of finally close that circle with meat. And, you know, I kind of haven't looked back since. I mean, it's been kind of a life-changing experience to be able to step outside and really just look at the world in a way that, that few other people get a chance to look at. And, you know, you asked me about yeah, so how the book comes at, comes about. So I started the, the website, Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, in 2007. And I was still working full-time. And I was a political reporter, and I'd, I'd been a political reporter for 18 years. And, you know, politics had became something I was very, very good at, um, but I no longer loved. And so I needed an outlet to kind of keep myself sane and, and, and a political world that is that had gotten more and more, you know, quite frankly, depressing. Um, and I don't know literally when I get into politics right now, but I needed 
suffice to say, needs an outlet. Mm-hmm. And, and Wild Food was it. And, you know, I was honored to be nominated for a James Beard Award in 2009 um, and again in 2010. And when that happened, uh, it was very much like, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Julie and Julia, where she gets written up by the New York Times or a phone starts ringing off the hook, mm-hmm. that happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was pretty cool, you know, and so the, the, the book, you know, it was sort of, publishers were came to me and said, hey, so what are you going to write? I said, well, by our am a writer, you know, I, I write this website. And the reason you're calling me is because of this website. Like, you know, when are you going to be an author? And so I finally sort of sat and thought for a little bit. And I didn't want the book to be a retread of blog posts. Yeah, there is some, some um, material from the blog in the book. But I wanted the book to really be more inspirational than, uh, let me rephrase that. I wanted the book to be as inspirational as it is useful. Okay. So it's not a straight up guidebook. You know, one of the, mm-hmm. one of the main criticisms against it is that, oh, well, you don't have a billion color photos and it's not a great guidebook. Well, that wasn't my intention. Yeah. It does not my say, intention, yeah, it does not say field guide on the, <laughs> on right, the cover. <laughs> right. You know, and a friend of mine actually has quite a good set of guidebooks. A guy named Sam Thayer, uh, has written two, you know, straight up field guides that are remarkable. And so I always point people who are looking for a straight up field guide to those books. And you know, so, but, but I really wanted to light a fire under people and inspire them to look somewhere in the natural world, somewhere, anywhere, you know, whether it's hunting or fishing or, you know, even just eating the weeds in your garden and, and, just reconnect with nature. I think it's just super important for people to do that right now. I totally agree. Absolutely. So when you were talking That's about, <clears throat> when you were talking about, you know, you discovered hunting rather uh, later in life at 32, um, mm-hmm. it kind of goes back to this quote of yours. You're, you, um, you called yourself the omnivore who has solved his dilemma. <laughs> Did, was that part of the piece, maybe the last piece of the puzzle? Uh, you know, I, it's funny because I, I started using that phrase after I read, obviously, Michael Pollan's book. Um, and I kept reading, I read his book, and I'm like, well, yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that. And I'm like, well, I don't have a dilemma anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't bought meat or fish for the house but a handful of times. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think literally I can count on less than two hands the number of times that I have bought protein for the house, mm-hmm. you know, meaning animal protein as opposed to eggs or, you know, I suppose that's animal protein, but I don't include eggs in that. Since 2004. So that's almost, almost 10 years. And, you know, if you're a good enough angler and, and hunter, you don't have to rely on the corporate food structure anymore. And I find that liberating. Yeah, that was the first word that came to mind. Liberating, for sure. Yeah, for me, it took finding a local grass-based, you know, pasture-based farm um, to get off the to get off the wagon, so to speak. Yeah, I did that actually. I did that, uh, you know, in two thousand three, I think it was. Um, we bought a quarter share of a grass-fed beef, and 
it was, you know, it was good. I liked it. It was good meat. Um, but I kind of got sick of it because um, it was just so much beef, right? So it, that kind of leads me to one of the other weird and, and, and fun benefits of doing this kind of thing is, you know, human beings are designed, we're created to eat a little of a lot. You know, you know, ducks when they're in season, you know, pheasants when they're in season, fish when it's in season, you know, green things when they're abundant, mushrooms when they're abundant. You know, it's, it's sort of thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And every week there's something different and interesting. And, and the healthiest human beings on Earth, you know, who are normally, you know, if you think about the healthiest people on Earth, they are, in general, hunter-gatherers. They're the best teeth, they're bigger, they're stronger. Um, and they do exactly that. They eat lots and lots and lots of things. You know, where people get in trouble biologically is when you eat a lot, you know, is eat a little of a lot. When you eat, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> when you eat a lot of a little, right. when you eat corn and wheat and and animals that are fed on corn and wheat mm-hmm. and salmon that are fed corn pellets and mm-hmm. tilapia that are fed, I don't know what they feed tilapia, right. but I think soylent green. But, <laughs> you know, just when your diet is hinges on a few ingredients, that is a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. I, that was one of the biggest points I gleaned from, from your blog and the book was that, you know, I, I've, I've interviewed a lot of diet and lifestyle practitioners, gurus, MDs, what have you. And the information that you provide is just as valuable as anything I've gained, any knowledge I've gained from an MD that teaches how to eat. I mean, it's just... Because because of the process, you you will become healthier. Because you know it's you can't gorge on on things. You have to, like you said, you, you it will come in balance and seasonality and all these things take effect. Yeah, I, I mean, I even it. if you don't, I mean, even if you don't hunt or fish or whatever, you know, and even if you just follow the, you know, farmers market season, and it, it, just something as simple as basic as rejecting asparagus in July, December, and, you know, mm-hmm. and it is, you know, it, it's just, asparagus is a springtime treasure. You know, that's when we should be eating asparagus, not now. You know, actually, it's starting right now, but, you know, I had, I was at a dinner, you know, it was a, so I had to be really nice, and, you know, it was in November, and the the chef was serving asparagus, mm-hmm. and it just—I'm like, ah, oh, dude, really? Right. I don't want to eat asparagus in November. You should be eating root vegetables in November. And even the very basic—you'd think it's basic, but it's kind of a stretch to some people. Um, thing of just not eating things out of season. You know, here's another here's another pledge. If if everybody listening to this takes the pledge of eating only produce made in you know grown in the United States. You go a long way to fixing some of the problems in people's diets. You know, there's another great expression I heard from somebody. This is a a guy who knows a lot about human biology and diet and such. He said, go ahead, eat all the sugar and eat all the salt you want. Here's the catch. Make it yourself. Mm -hmm. You You want to eat cake? Make it. 
You want to eat a chocolate bar? Make it. Yeah, that's kind of, that was kind of clever, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think uh, Michael Pollan even said something similar in The Omnivore's Dilemma about French fries. Go ahead and go through the process of making them. You won't eat them that much. Yeah. You know, you're not going to... You're not going to eat a basket damn full every if you've day. ever made French fries. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I love the seasonality approach. I know, you know, one another thing that um, that I love is getting on a CSA that I have no control over. I don't pick. So I just get a basket of produce every week. And you're forced to learn what all this produce is. And you're forced to eat in season. And you have, you've got to be, you got to be into it to utilize that basket. You've got to learn, you know, and I that's, think that's great because it teaches true. you how to cook. You know, I think that's sort of when you, when you really boil everything that, you know, the whole food movement and all its permutations, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a wild food guy, right? But, but really what it's, what we're all in it together for, no matter who we are, we're all in it to, for people to just learn how to cook more and, and to be, it's it's skipped two generations, and the the ability of people to cook, you know, is it, your diet hinges on that. And the interesting thing that I'm seeing is my girlfriend teaches um, journalism at Sacramento State, and uh, at Sac State University, you know, she started a food section at her university's paper. Or really, her her kids did because they were interested in it. But it's heartening to see that kids, you know, teenagers and young people, you know, just barely into their 20s are way more into home cooking than my generation ever was, by far. And I think that's heartening. I think I think maybe it's some indication that all of this exhortation that all of us try to do, just, you know, learn how to cook, is yep. maybe sinking in. I love that. I, I, I really hope that takes hold. And... And in some ways, it, it will because of it's kind of like the rule of excess um, will apply where people will notice that, well, hopefully, that there's just an abundance of just ridiculousness and, and they'll shy away, from, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll rebel against it. I mean, that's what happened to me. You know, it was like a rebellion against corporate food. And that's my angle. You know, I consider myself a paleo eater, you know. That's how I kind of learned mm-hmm. how to eat, was just reading some paleo books. Um, but just as a revolt, <laughs> you know, a personal revolt. Like, and for me, it was also to save my children's health. Yeah, I mean, who wants to have their kids grow up, grow up eating ho-hos and Twinkies, you know what I mean? Yeah. And even the regular food, even if it's just the regular boxed food that seems like it's healthy, you know, Kashi cereal and other garbage like that, it's it's just not going to do you any favors. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough, you know, because everyone's diet is going to be different, and everyone has different time constraints. And, you know, the thing about it is, you know, if you just learn some basic things, I mean, for like tonight, I'm, gonna, I'm cooking a couple of ducks. I'm going to cook some wild mustard greens and make some polenta. You know, mm-hmm. to some people that's kind of a big deal, but to me that's sort of almost mindless, you know, I mean, because I've cooked 8,000 zillion ducks over the years. And anybody can saute, you know, green things, <laughs> I would hope. And polenta is just a question of standing next to the stove and make sure it doesn't burn on the bottom of the pot. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, but everything is, you know, it's, everything is, you know, is from scratch and it doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, the very simple act of learning how to make your own spaghetti sauce. Here's a crazy fact that I didn't realize until just recently, so don't buy this stuff. Look at a Prego supermarket, you know, spaghetti sauce jar, right? Yeah, the first ingredient is tomatoes, but sugar is the second ingredient, or really high fructose corn syrup. But isn't that amazing? I mean, I make my own, I've been making my own tomato sauce for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I have a pinch of sugar in it. Yeah, I was going to say, a pinch. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But. It's, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure, you know, onions and olive oil and wine are probably going to be way higher in the ingredient list than sugar. Yeah. So, I, I mean, even mm. just something as basic as spaghetti sauce, I mean, you, your health will automatically improve. Yeah, and if anyone wants another, uh, a real insight into into how this happened and why, there's a new book I'm reading right now called Salt, Sugar, Fat. How the food, oh, I've heard of this book. Yeah, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. It's 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 painful. <laughs> I mean, it it just oh it, it it it's utterly sad to me, but yet wildly intriguing to see how this happened. You know when it started, where it came from, and where it's headed. Yeah, is that the one that was excerpted for the New York Times Magazine? That's right. Yeah. Where they had it? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because I, I I read the New York Times Magazine piece. It was very very. It was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the the chip makers know that there's a particular pounds per square inch of a chip that <laughs> that people want, you know, and it's it's interesting because there's not a thing know, the, they don't know. Now <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's pretty sad. I'll tell you what, though. What's enlightening is discovering a blog like yours. I do have some questions. Like, are you the photographer? No. Well, you, sometimes I am. Yeah. But my the primary photographer is my girlfriend Holly. She's very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, she is. <laughs> yeah. It's it's shocking to see. I mean, it's you. I couldn't I, I couldn't square it. I'm like, oh, is this a corporate blog? But yet this guy was seems independent. Like, who the hell's doing this photography? And are these actual meals they made? Cause it's, yeah, we it's, eat it's, everything that we shoot. Wow, I've never yeah. I've never made something and not eaten it right after we shot it. Well, I commend your efforts there. It's a wonderful looking blog, and the writing's outstanding. Um, Thank you. I just finished the piece, the imperative of protein, and I even shared it on Twitter. I, I love it. Yeah, that was a that was a piece that was kind of burning a hole in my head. You know, it's 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 about a, you know, a year ago. I wrote a piece called "On Killing," which I wrote it in the middle of the hunting season. And I, you know, I, <laughs> I, it's funny because I had meant to write you know a recipe piece for the blog, and I sat down at my keyboard and I could I just smelled like dead ducks, and you know I had duck fat under my fingernails. It was just, it was, I was so, my world was completely revolving around duck hunting at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I had to write this piece. And it's funny because I originally wrote a version of the imperative of protein back in 2008. And it was a very different, it's sort of my first exploration of the phenomenon of when you have something that comes in the door, 
and, and since I've written that, vegetarians have pointed out to me correctly, I might add, that the imperative is not just protein. It's it, it, anything that's fresh and perishable mm-hmm. must be dealt with the second you you get it into the door. And fish need to be, you know, butchered and salted or pickled or frozen. And, you know, the time waits for no man. And when you live this lifestyle, your life revolves around what's here and now, and it requires you to change your life. I mean, for example, right now in California, it's sort of the green time. But guess what happened this week? We just hit three days in the 80s. So three days in the in the 80s are going to completely alter the whole green landscape that I've been leisurely living off of for mm-hmm. you know for a month or so. And so now I've been running around gathering as much mustard greens and wild onions and miner's lettuce and you know I cut my cardoons in my back garden because they get bitter when it gets hot and heat is your enemy when you when you're dealing with green things and so. If, you know, if I was working a day job, you know, 10 hours a day or something like that, I would have missed that opportunity. And, you know, it's so yeah, that, they, that imperative really wild, is oh, something that controls you. Okay, yeah, yeah. I keep, and if anyone is struggling with boredom, this will solve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. I, got, I get asked a lot, Are you, do you ever get a hard time finding ideas? I'm like, no. Just go for a stroll. <laughs> I'm gonna be ninety by the time I run out of ideas, and even then, I mean, it's just this—you can't do everything. It's just you know, there's there's so much going on in the world around you that, you know, yes, it's sad that you know maybe you missed the greens this time, but you'll catch them next year. Yeah. So what and happened? What? what happened next with the wild broccolis? Oh, I got them. You know, yeah. I got tons of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's they're, they're, they're right now. Here's the cool thing about California. I can do one of two things. I can go to the coast where it's cool and foggy, or I can go up the hill to the Sierra Nevada. And altitude is my friend, so I can keep climbing where it's cooler and cooler and cooler. And, you know, for example, you know, I don't know what the morel season is where you live, but for us, we not only get them early, like around now, here in the valley, but we will get morels all the way up until mid-June, and even July sometimes, at seven or 8,000 feet. Hmm. So, you know, we have a, a climactic flexibility that most other states don't have. Yeah, unfortunately, when I lived in the Bay Area, it was always Carl's Jr. season. So, <laughs> that's, that was my downfall. You know, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> I didn't know. I just didn't know. I and I did know, but I I just didn't give a crap or whatever. That's unfortunate. I lived right there and never took advantage of anything. Yeah, that's a shame. There's a lot to do in a bay. You know, just sightseeing and seeing sights and you know the hot spots and stuff and going for drives up the coast north of San Francisco, Point Reyes. Um, I'm kind of a birder by nature, by heart. I just love viewing birds. And understanding them, and I used to love to go to Point Reyes for that. I see. I'm at Point Reyes all the time, actually. Really? Yeah, it's 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 wonderful up there. And yeah, I mean, if I ever if I could pick a spot, it would be somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in that area, north of the north of San Francisco. 
you could do worse than Point Reyes or Tomales. Yeah. I would actually probably get off the coast, though, and go a little bit inland for me. I'm not an ocean guy. Ah, uh, okay. But I do love watching the ocean birds. Yeah, it's funny. I was out uh, tuna fishing in off North Carolina uh, in the fall of 2011, and... We got into the sargasso bed, and we saw all kinds of crazy seabirds that I'd never seen before. Oh, yeah? You know, like shearwaters and, and skuas and, and frigate birds and all kinds of things that, I, that normally don't hang around North Carolina, but they travel up and they follow the sargasso beds. Hmm. So it was kind of cool. It's really great to see how the aviary works with the other animals of the earth, how they follow clean up messes, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, and, you know, I, as a, as a, you know, I, and one of the things about being a hunter is there's this paradoxical, you know, it's a paradoxical relationship that I haven't fully managed to think my way through yet. Yeah, I hunt ducks and I shoot ducks and I eat ducks. I love ducks. I mean, I, I spend personally several thousand dollars a year uh, just to help habitat out, you know, Ducks Unlimited and, and California Waterfowl and Delta Waterfowl and groups like that. I donate money to those groups to help make, preserve and maintain habitat for, for waterfowl. And not just the ducks that we hunt, but all the things that are in the marsh as well. And, and when I'm not hunting ducks, I just love watching them. I just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just, I can't fully... I haven't been able to fully suss it out what's going on, but it's just there's this sort of talismanic fascination well, with the animals and in, in you know yeah. in general. Let me you have everything to teach me. Let me share one thing with you. There's an there's a a man named John Young. It's spelled mm-hmm. J O N Young. He has a book called What the Robin Knows. That's the best way to just find him. And mm-hmm. then to discover what he's discovered about birds and the natural world is mind-blowing. He's probably, I, I wouldn't know how to describe him. The, he carries uh, Native American wisdom living. He, so he studied from some primitive cultures, some Native American cultures, and then also in the Kalahari mm-hmm. in Africa. And he, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, especially the bird knowledge that he has. That, that's a great intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything he has, any of his info, he's got videos about birds and it's fascinating stuff. So there's I'll that. Look them up. That's, that's, that, sounds, that sounds awesome. I'm just sort of fascinated by it. You know, because when I don't read things about food, I'm always reading things about, um, you know, biology and paleontology and mm-hmm. natural science and, I'm kind of a science channel geek, you know. I'm like, oh, yeah, look, there's another show about sharks or something that I want to watch. <laughs> yeah, cool. Hey, so for this year, it looks like uh, your focus is ducks. <laughs> Duck, the cookbook, is coming out later this Absolutely. year? Absolutely, uh, October 1st. We're calling it Duck, Duck, Goose. And you're doing a wild book tour. I mean, you're, that's, uh, I was looking at the map. You're crazy. I mean, you know, part of it is um, part of it is reader generated, and so it, it's kind of a weird phenomenon that you know just is deeply, deeply gratifying and incredibly humbling because 
so yeah, you know, I know that I'm going to go to X, Y, or Z place, but there's all these other places that will say, oh, well, we absolutely can, you know, bring a crowd for you if you come to my city and we'll help set the event up and, or chefs will say, yeah, let's do it at my restaurant. And, you know, they approach me and that kind of enthusiasm is incredibly, incredibly humbling. And, you know, who am I to say, if somebody in, in Maine says, yeah, well, we'll pack the house for you. Who am I to say that I can't go, hmm. you know? And if I can physically do it, I'm going to do it because I enjoy meeting people in person as much as I do interacting with them on the internet. In fact, I enjoy it more because you can actually see them. <laughs> sure. Share <a> <laughs> and, I, and I learned so much from my readers that, you know, it's, 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 when I get to these events, I realize that this really, it's not about me. It's not about the website. It's about the, the ideas behind it. And every one of those events is, is just invigorating. And so, yeah, am I going to be tired when it's done? You betcha. But, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, you're actually going to drive this tour cross-country? Absolutely. Drove the last one, too. Yeah. 27,000 miles on my little pickup truck. Oh, my. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah, it looks, I see that you're going to be making two stops near me. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I'll be, yeah, I'll be in Cleveland for quite a while, actually. I think I'm going to be there for four or five days. Oh, really? I have a good friend who lives in Parkman. Okay. And so I'll be staying with him, and... It's kind of hard for me to to not actually do some hunting or fishing when I'm in northeastern Ohio. <laughs> yeah, I live <clears throat> probably one mile from the Rocky River. I've oh, never, wow. I've never river fished, um, really, just a little bit as a kid. Did more gigging and stuff like that and crawling around. Um, but I want that's going to be my new thing this year. I'm going to focus on the river um, and learn and learn its ways. Because I grew up on Lake Erie. That's I just fished perch and walleye in my youth. I love fishing perch and Lake Erie. That was a that was a ton of fun. Yeah, um, when it's it, it was our daily routine for food, so it got a little old, you know. And I quit at around sixteen and kind of never looked back. I don't think I did any serious fishing again until I went to Glacier National Park <laughs> and had I there. Your jaws just dropped. I mean. Uh, have you ever been there? No, I haven't. Wow, glacier, man, that's that, that that's fun fishing. That was amazing. But um, yeah, I want to rediscover the river and, and like I said, learn its ways. I don't. Um, I'm not one of these guys that's going to go to the buy a thousand dollars worth of fly fishing gear though. So I got to figure out how to do it on the cheap. Well, I do mostly spin casting, so yeah. I don't really. I'm not a very good fly fisherman. Okay, good to know it can be done then. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and just never, just never let them get you down when they give you stink eye for using bait. Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, I grew up bait fishing. The, you know the. You know, I'm course. a bait fisher for, I'm a bait fisherman from way back. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I mean, I don't really do catch and release. I mean, obviously for the law, you know, if you catch a short fish or whatever, but I don't go fishing to do catch and release. I mean, I go fishing to, to eat fish and, you know, and if, and if I'm not going to be able to eat the fish, I'm just not going to wet a line. And, and, you know, that's just my choice. And most people are cool with that. You know, there's a, there's a certain set of, you know, I've, I've gotten stink eye from bass fishermen, you know, when I take a couple of largemouth home, it, mm-hmm. 
they look at me like I killed their pet. And, yep. You know, in some ways I kind of did. Yep, you did. Yep, it's true. It reminds me of an, uh, something you wrote in that piece, The Imperative of Protein, uh, where you had just uh, come across someone. I think you said you were in Ohio. Oh, yeah, yeah, I discovered you were a hunter and basically called you a monster. You asked her if, yeah. she, was, you asked her if she was vegetarian. She's like, no, I yeah, buy... Yeah, that was just a weird... That I, was a buy weird my, I buy my meat in the supermarket like a normal person. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was a weird moment. And I probably should not have engaged just because I was tired. And they were like, really, lady, where are you coming from? And... The good news is that I get that re- I get that reaction a lot less than I used to, and so to me that tells me that that you know we're making progress as a movement, and that the people who would have said that loudly five or six or seven or ten years ago now realize that there's a certain hypocrisy in that stance. That even if they feel they're no longer willing to voice it as much, and I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You wrote another great piece, The Lines We Draw. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you cover some things that you're just not, you just won't um, take part in. You know, everybody's got different lines. I mean, this is a, that, that piece is about what do you eat, what, what's good, what, what you eat and what you don't eat. And, um, you, you know, it's just... It, it, I am not one of those guys who will say, well, you know, you can eat everything. Yeah, of course you can. But eating is more than just a nutritional act. Uh, Eating is, you know, food and and, and eating are are cultural and symbolic. And, you know, it's like with the horse meat thing that's going on in Europe. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of people in Europe who eat horse meat. But, you know, not for nothing, I've eaten horse meat salami and it's fine. But the question is, do you, you know, you shouldn't be at, you know, you should, you should know if you're going to eat it or not. You know, if somebody's slipping a horse meat in your burger when, let's say, you ride horses, I mean, that's horrible. You know, it's like, here, have your cat as, mm-hmm. as a chicken fried steak. I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, if you're eating so, dinner, if you're eating dinner in a furniture store, a Walmart-sized furniture store called Ikea, and you get some horse meat in it, that's shame on you. For eating dinner at IKEA, <laughs> I don't know. I'd be pretty pissed if uh, if I ordered some what I thought were were beef Swedish meatballs and there's hard in it. Yeah, yeah, in it. yeah. I, mean, I know. <laughs> still, <laughs> you know, mostly I wrote it because you know I have some friends who hunt crows and who hunt cats, and yeah, they eat them. And you know, hey, that's your choice. It's just not a choice that I want to make. And, you know, it's, it, it, it leads it into bear hunting, where bear hunting is kind of a leaner for people. Mm-hmm. Because while bears have a long history as meat animals in North America and elsewhere, it's, the cultural symbolism of bears is not, does not put them in the food bucket. Yeah. Almost every bear image that North American Sea is related to a teddy bear or gentle ban or in a, you know or endangered grizzlies or polar bears, which you know polar bears not for often are the only land animal that routinely hunting human beings. It's the only one. 
there are individual cats that will hunt people, but every polar bear will hunt them. That's impressive. Not quite so so cuddly as you think. But but that's the image, right? So whenever somebody hunts bears, uh, you know, there's a certain... It's different. So if you said, yeah, I I hunt and eat bears, you're in a different box than somebody who says, I hunt and eat deer. You know, we've been hunting deer and deer-like animals since before we were actually us. Yeah, we're just, here in Ohio, we're not even allowed to hunt enough deer. My backyard, just today we were watching six, just in my <laughs> suburban backyard. There's too many. It's it's, nice. it's too many. Uh, the one, the big doe had a bad back leg. She'd obviously been hit by a car or something. And I was like, it's just, I don't know, they're, I don't want to call them a problem, but they're kind of a problem. <laughs> and it's, you know... We're in their spot, but there's no natural system that, actually, that, that would control them. Do you know what I mean? We're not actually in their spot. Um, there's a great book called Nature Wars by a, a reporter named Jim Sturba. And he brings up the point, a very valid point, that it's not like we've moved into their territory. It's that we've made our territory more amenable to them. Yeah. The, and okay. it's sort of the great reforesting of the East. And there's more tree cover in the in the Northeast at any time, you know, than at any time since the 1700s, and that necessarily has increased the population of, of wildlife. It's just that now there's this great big forest with houses in it. It's a great book. I mean, I highly recommend you take a yeah, look at it. I'll make it's, a note of it. Cool. It, it. It will change your your view mm-hmm. of a lot of things. Excellent. It has a whole great chapter on deer. Yeah, and then with all the backyard gardens, I mean, that's salad bar. It's like they yeah, they go crazy. <laughs> so I gotta I gotta uh, check out at some point soon because uh, I actually have to go make dinner. <laughs> hey, no, that's fine. I think I think we covered just about everything. It was wonderful. Sure. Um, so one quick question about like um, the little the little guys like the squirrels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, are you are you into that? And do you think that that's um. Well, what's just what's your opinion on 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 hunting like squirrel and and small small game for f- source a, of food? I love hunting small game. I mean, yeah. I hunt small game quite a bit. Okay. Um, you know, and I in fact I've been squirrel hunting in northeastern Ohio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean it's I I, I enjoy it. I okay. mean, I I like the taste of rabbit. Um, I think rabbit may be one of my top three or four favorite foods. Squirrels right up there. Um. You know, I don't really hunt much of else, you know, in terms of small mammals, but I know a lot of guys who hunt muskrats, and they're pretty good. Um, you know, beavers and woodchucks. And, hmm. But, I mean, if you, you know, rabbits, hares, and squirrels are some of my favorite favorite foods. Okay. I'll recheck out the squirrels. I used to go squirrel hunting in West Virginia when I was a kid, but I, I, I hated it, and I didn't like the meat, so... Uh, try my squirrel Aurora. That's in the book, actually. Okay, cool. Yeah, I bought the book. I I really liked it, so I actually ordered it after getting it at the library. Really, thank you for your time. This was really fun. Cool, no problem. Yeah, man. I'll see you in Cleveland. What's that? I'll see you in Cleveland. Ah, you bet. (laughs) See you later this year. All right, man. Thanks again, Hank. Bye. Thanks a lot.